0: You are listening to the Draper Fisher Jurvetson Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Seminar, brought to you weekly by Stanford Technology Ventures Program at Stanford University School of Engineering.
1: Uh, My pleasure to welcome here uh, on February 14th, Valentine's Day, the CEO of eHarmony. Greg has been a, we we have a hat trick with Greg. Uh, If you notice, he's been a uh, CEO, which is doing now, but he 's been an investor, so he 's looked at the sort of entrepreneurial process from that lens, and he 's also been an entrepreneur since he was i, I think I believe this thirteen <laughs> so you remember when you were thirteen i 'm not sure what you were doing at that point, maybe you were starting companies too, but he 's been doing it since he 's thirteen, which is what about five six years ago, something like a seven years ago max okay um, He uh, is a UCLA uh, undergraduate, as you can see, but uh, we are uh, having the pleasure today of welcoming him him back to campus because uh, he got his MBA uh, from the Stanford Business School in 1994, so he must have been about 12 when he was there at that point. Pretty topical day, pretty topical guy, so let's welcome Greg. Greg, back to campus. Thanks,
0: Thanks, Tom. It is uh, great to always be back at Stanford um, but it's especially uh, terrific for me to be here on Valentine's Day because when you are the CEO of eHarmony this is our busiest day during our busiest week and really our busiest season and it all ends right here on Valentine's Day. I really want to talk to you a lot today about entrepreneurship uh, but I'm going to start with just one fact about eHarmony to give you a sense of what our business is all about on an average day in America, 200 people, 200 people get married who have met through eHarmony. Think about that. I could fill probably this entire auditorium in a day or two. I could fill Stanford football stadium in less than a year. And it should give you a sense of the incredible meaning uh, I get out of being CEO of this company. There are a lot of businesses that do a lot of different things for people. But it's especially special when you're helping people with this incredibly important objective that they have, and that's finding love. You probably don't hear very many guest speakers coming in to talk about entrepreneurship and the business of love, but it's something that I've been able to get involved with, and it's been one of the best things of my life. At eHarmony, we match people based on what we call 29 dimensions of compatibility. It's sort of like this deep compatibility uh, model that looks at the things that you value. And we have an algorithm, basically, that helps match people and help them find the right person. When you get matched with somebody, you actually get to click on their link, and sort of a screen comes up. You've all been on the web. And you get five must-haves that the other person says that they can't live without in a match. And I thought a lot about you know these five must-haves as I was thinking about coming here to Stanford and talking today. And I think this, what we do professionally uh, or personally at eHarmony, translates a lot into an entrepreneurial career. And when I was thinking what would I have wanted to hear back in 1993 or 1994 when I went to these types of lectures, I thought you know what would I have needed to know to have a great entrepreneurial career. So I jotted down a bunch of notes that I have here. And I thought I would give you the five must-haves for an entrepreneurial career. It'll probably take uh, 20 or so minutes to go through them. And then I'm really looking forward to doing Q&A toward the back half of, uh, of the hour. I think the number one thing in having a great entrepreneurial career is working with great people. It may seem incredibly obvious. Um, you know, you, you are surrounded by a lot of great people here at Stanford. And when you think of a lot of the entrepreneurial success stories that have come out of this university, uh, Yahoo, eBay, Google, you tend to think of a lot of the financial rewards, the incredible success that people had. But for any of us who were around when these companies were being formed, I think the part that you remember most is the great people who were involved. And you will probably, as you think about your entrepreneurial career, try to predict what will be the great companies. In fact, as I walked in to see Tom for a cup of coffee, I saw, kind of as I was walking in, this uh, talk for tomorrow night, which you might go to, called Finding the Next Google. And I think that it's a very common objective for people when they're here, whether they're undergraduates or graduate students, to think about what's going to be the next Google or Yahoo or eBay but the reality is you'll probably not be very successful at finding the next Google. In fact, venture capitalists who have five to 10 portfolio companies at any given time aren't usually that effective at knowing which specific one will be the great hit. What you can all be incredibly successful at, and this advice is important whether you're going to a tiny startup, a mid-sized company, or a public company, it's incredibly important to work with great people. And I'm confident that every single person in this room can figure that part out. When I think about all the people who are great um, in my career, and you think to yourself, "How could I?" Ex-, or I think, how could I explain to you to find those great bosses? I think it's actually easier than you think, because you've done it earlier in your lives. You probably have had a teacher, a coach, a professor somebody who took that special amount of interest in you during your early academic career. And that person probably made a big difference. You're looking for those same qualities when you're finding your first boss, when you think about the people that you're going to work for right out of school. It'll be incredibly meaningful for you as you think about, who am I going to spend all day with? I'll tell you a story just from uh, from my own experience and getting involved with eHarmony. On Super Bowl Sunday in the year 2000, I met with Neil Warren and Greg Forgatch, who are the two principal founders of eHarmony, and they had come to talk to me about funding their company. I sat down with them, and I listened to the entire pitch, and it was literally just a pitch for an idea. There was no site. There was nothing to look at. But the part I came away with most strongly was, these were two entrepreneurs that I wanted to work with they would be great people to collaborate with. And as I talk to many people I know who have had long and successful careers with ups and downs, the part it always comes back to is the quality of people that they worked for. So as you go out there and you think about whatever you're going to do coming out of school, the entrepreneurial mindset is surround yourself with great people. The company part will most likely work itself out over the course of your career. Important point number two in having a great entrepreneurial career. You've got to be willing to take risks. The advice I'll probably give you here your parents may hate, because what I'm going to tell you to do is don't go the safe path. There is an unbelievable amount of pressure when you are here at Stanford to go and take what is perceived to be the prestigious job, the job that you have to get because everybody will know the name. What's it like as either an undergraduate in your final year, as a graduate student in your final year, when people say to you, what are you going to be doing after school? Your parents are going to ask you that, your friends. And I think it takes some fortitude just to go a path that says I'm not going to do investment banking or consulting. And having, <laughs> having listened to some of the podcasts that Tom pointed me to before I came here, I suspect this may be a common theme And I don't mean to be critical of investment bankers or consultants. Many of them are my friends. But I think there is something, particularly when you're at Stanford, about taking this easy route because the jobs are right here. When I was at my own business school graduation, Mike Spence, who was the dean at that time of Stanford Business School and I'm fortunate to count as a good friend today, said to all of us some of the best advice I've ever gotten, which is, Never pass up an opportunity because you are afraid of falling behind your peers. Think about that. You really need to be self-directed. Don't walk away from something that's exciting to you or you're passionate about because of your sense of keeping up. You're all incredibly talented and that advice which I've given to a lot of people I think makes a lot of sense. I want to tell you a story about a friend of mine who is a classmate of mine here. Um, His name is Greg Sands. And I remember during the second year of uh, business school, he was really committed to finding an entrepreneurial career. And again, when I say that, I'm going to use the word entrepreneurship here, describing some of you in the future. I don't just mean going into a garage with two people to found a company. This involves all different stages. He just knew he wanted to be in an entrepreneurial business. And through a lot of proactive searching and work, he ended up getting a job offer from a company that was called Mosaic Communications. This is back in 1994. And we all kind of, at least I remember Greg going through this job search, and it definitely seemed risky at the time what he was doing. Um, in fact, it's almost crazy, we all felt kind of sorry for Greg because he had to start work the day after graduation. Graduation was on a Sunday, he had to go to work on a Monday. And I think he was doing some consulting before that in fact. Now for those of you who know the story of the internet, Mosaic became Netscape. And Greg was about the 20th employee at Netscape. And the experience that he had being an employee there was what we all watched. Netscape really defined the internet era. It went public in the summer of 1995, in the mid-20s. It closed at, I think, $56 or $58 a share which people thought was unbelievable because it valued the business at a billion dollars. No one could believe that for such a young company. But I'll tell you, the experience that he was going into was really a wise choice. For one, he was somebody who had succeeded at a lot of points in his life before. He knew he was going to work with the kind of entrepreneurs like Jim Clark and Mark Andreessen, two people who are certainly on campus here a lot. There really wasn't as much risk as we all thought. He was going into a very smart empl- environment, employee number 20. This was a going concern. And so it was a really smart risk to have taken. And it's not just small companies. Another friend of mine, Mike Volpe, also a business school classmate, I remember sitting with him at this uh, ugly sculpture called The Birds, which some of you may know, which is over in the business school courtyard. I literally can remember sitting with him and he was weighing a job offer between a consulting firm and Cisco Systems. It seemed incredibly risky to go to Cisco Systems back in 1994 and it was already a public company. So think about that. He took a risk to go to this company called Cisco and those of you who may know Mike, he's also around a lot. He joined as an individual contributor right out of school He just actually retired last week after 13 years at Cisco, having left uh, his last role was running their entire routing business, which is half of Cisco's revenue, more than 10,000 employees. And what may have been perceived as a risk was actually really smart because Cisco had these ingredients I'm talking about, really good people, and it was a really well-run company. To not go to a consulting firm wasn't that big of a risk. So I think as you think entrepreneurially, it's not just about how do I get into a startup, it's being proactive and going into companies where you can have a great entrepreneurial career. The, the third point of thinking entrepreneurial, uh, entrepreneurially and having a great career is really being willing to adapt. All of you have something special. And that is that you were able to get admitted to Stanford University. As either an undergraduate or a graduate student. And I don't say that as a way of kind of just pumping you all up. It shows that you were able to look at a pretty well known set of things you had to get done to get admitted. Everybody knew what it would take to get admitted to Stanford. But all of you were willing to work hard enough and work smart enough as other people weren't, to get admitted. But it was a known set of things that you had to get done. You knew what courses you had to take, you knew what recommendations you needed, extracurricular, all those kinds of things. An entrepreneurial career is entirely different. Almost nothing will play out as you had expected. Nothing. And if it does, it will probably be just by luck. So you've got to be willing to adapt. You've got to be willing to stay flexible as things come your way. Again, whether you're at a small company, a mid-sized company. I'll tell you from eHarmony's early days, I'll tell you a story. When we originally launched the business, we were under the impression that we would be able to have this compatibility matching system with absolutely no photos. It would just give people a match and well we went out and we launched and we went to market and not surprisingly men in particular, weren't super excited about using a service that didn't have any photos. Think about that. We actually had this belief, it seems crazy in retrospect, that we could launch an online relationship service without photos. It might be like going on the Facebook and taking down all the photos. Probably wouldn't work as well. Um, This prompted an enormous amount of soul searching for us. Because we really thought it was our core value to just do this deep compatibility matching. And if we showed photos, would that somehow undermine what we were all about? We talked about it for a long time internally. And in the end, we decided there was absolutely no reason we couldn't show photos because they were all compatible matches somebody was receiving. And after we did that, it was, I think, one of the key drivers of our later growth. But in retrospect, while it seemed easy at the time, I think it was one of the greatest Uh, demonstrations of adaptability we had as a business. And I think this happens all the time in an entrepreneurial career in terms of you'll go to a company thinking it's going to be incredibly successful and maybe that one wasn't or the ones that you thought you were taking a flyer turned out to be huge. But it also happens once you're in a job. You'll have a lot of unanticipated things happen and you're gonna have to balance between sort of your core views and your core beliefs and what it takes to be successful. In this case for us, we felt that they were completely compatible for us because every match we were showing was a compatible match. Just as a side note, um, if you have a photo posted on eHarmony, you are eight times more likely to get a response to any communication. So I think it showed that users really demanded it and I think we made the right decision. I think the fourth point in having an entrepreneurial career is really loving what you do. Um, I'm incredibly fortunate to work at eHarmony. Um, I absolutely love what I do. I sometimes describe eHarmony as an addictive business. And it's addictive as a professional because you really think to yourself, how could I be involved with something that's less meaningful in people's lives once you've done this? We estimate that by the end of next year, a hundred thousand babies will have been born to the people who have met on eHarmony. (laughs) I've been involved in a lot of other companies. Um, Enterprise software, uh, audience measurement systems, the kind of things where you tell people what you do or what you're invested in and you get kind of a big yawn. You tell people you work at eHarmony and they're definitely interested. it's not that it's so important for all of you to come and work at eHarmony, although if you're interested, pick up one of my cards. Um, <laughs> what's really important is find out what you're passionate about. It will take time to find yourself in the right career space. It's not too soon now to start thinking about you know, work. I, I like to say never work on something that you're not passionate about. Life is basically just too short. You will spend more time at the office than just about any other thing in your life throughout your professional career. In fact, in your whole life for many of you. So you might as well work on something that you care deeply about. I learned this lesson a little bit the hard way. I have the distinction of being, I think, the only Stanford University graduate to start a smoothie company and an internet company in the same year. Uh, When I was between my first and second year here at Town & Country Shopping Center, uh, next to Hobie's where I would frequently eat, uh, Juice Club opened. It was was then called Juice Club, it's now called Jamba Juice. And this was only their second or third location that they ever had. And no matter if you went on a nice summer day or on the coldest winter night, there was a line out the door around the block, uh, literally in Town & Country. And like a lot of my business school classmates, we were completely fascinated by this business. And so I actually, with a business partner, launched a competitor to Jamba Juice. And a little unknown fact is that more people in my graduating class started smoothie companies than internet companies. (laughs) (laughs) Probably not true in the engineering school. Um, But, you know, I opened this business and We had this plan to open our store in Houston, Texas, for reasons that I won't get it, go into, just before the summer of 1995. And due to construction delays and a whole bunch of other things that went completely wrong, go back to my point about staying adaptable, uh, our store opened after the summer of 1995, which then led into the coldest winter in 100 years in Houston, Texas. (laughs) everybody kept saying to me there's never a frost in Houston, Texas. I sat there in that smoothie store (laughs) staring at that blender and if you ever really want to get serious about figuring out what you're passionate about try sitting in a smoothie store through the coldest winter in a hundred years. What I learned about myself was that I'm incredibly passionate about business in general and I love talking to people about whatever business they have, but for me I really wanted to be involved with technology companies, technology-enabled growth companies. It had a, there were a lot of reasons behind it, but I, in a way, learned through a hard entrepreneurial experience. Fortunately, I'd also helped to start an internet company. What it was that would really make me go, this is a hard life to pick if you want to be an entrepreneur and you want to think like one. So it's really important to work on what you care about. The fifth point, you have got to put your plan into action now. You've got to take charge of your career. Again, not just if you're thinking about starting a company, just if you want to have an entrepreneurial career path within other companies, wherever you plan on going. You have an unbelievable platform here at Stanford. You know, talking to Tom before the class about all the different things you have going on here. This e-week, all the different speakers, getting a cup of coffee in term and looking at all the different flyers, all the different things that you can do. Don't lose sight of this amazing opportunity. While you are here, you can put your career onto an incredible, you can start it on an incredible march. It is so easy as a Stanford student to just roll out of bed put on a suit, go for the case interview, go to the bank, go to the consulting firm. If you have thought about this, and I know a lot of you have, really push it through to what you're passionate about. Stay focused on this. It is really easy to get diverted when you're at Stanford, to get busy and not put the time into the job search. The really good jobs won't come to you. You're going to have to go out and get them. And while you're here at Stanford, you have the most unbelievable opportunity to reach out to people at just about any company in the world. You could send a letter to the CEO of just about any company that you're interested in. And I would guess that you probably have a better than 50-50 chance of getting a response to a letter that simply says, hey, I'm interested in your company. I'm a Stanford student. Is there a chance I could come in for 20 minutes to talk to you about what kind of career I might be able to have? And you might think to yourself, Greg, how can you give this advice to everybody? Everybody in this auditorium is going to do it. But the reality is, because I've given this advice many times before, is that many of you will think about it, but very few of you would do it. And I think there's this incredible amount of thought that goes into entrepreneurship while people are students, and then they kind of let time go by, because they think it will always be easy to get back into it later when you think about what kind of job does it make sense to get, I just simply say get customer facing. And What I mean by that is whether you are in the social sciences or you are in the engineering school, get a job where you can get focused on what makes customers happy, how people buy products, learning really just how to make a business go. As I'm kind of flipping through resumes for almost any job that I'm hiring, If I see that somebody at some point in their career has had a waitressing job or a waiting tables job or maybe they managed a college bookstore, that tells me so much about their ability to satisfy customers. Those are the people who really win. And I think if you're interested in an entrepreneurial career, find yourself in a customer-facing job. I cannot tell you how often I get an email that goes something like this. Dear Greg, you may not remember, but I met you at, fill in the blank, Stanford ETL lecture, 2007. (laughs) I really loved what you had to say about entrepreneurship. And I was really interested in getting an entrepreneurial job. But I got really busy. So I accepted a job at, fill in the blank, consulting firm, Investment Bank. And I am miserable. How do I get back into kind of the entrepreneurial community? Who should I talk to? I should have done it right out of business school because, or undergrad, because my boss doesn't care about me, and I have no passion for what I'm doing. So an entrepreneurial type of career isn't for everybody. Some people don't even want to go to a mid-sized public company with 500 employees. If I had to pick a place for all of you, it would be kind of a company maybe with one or two hundred employees, if you want to think entrepreneurially. Not super small, but now is the time. Don't wait. It doesn't get easier. Let me try to wrap this up and we'll get to Q&A, which I'm really looking forward to. I want you to fast forward, if you can, 10 or 20 years. Think about yourself at a Stanford reunion for one I can tell you I've been to a few it's a lot of it's great to be there you'll run into people you haven't seen in years and people are gonna come up to you in a way that's similar to how they come up to you when you're at orientation It's just it's after school and they're basically gonna say what have you been up to what are you doing and you're gonna talk a lot about your personal lives no doubt but they're also gonna say what are you doing for work and will you be able to say to them I work with great people. I've taken really smart risks in my career. I've stayed adaptable when things didn't go exactly as I had planned. And I love what I do. I'm passionate about it. Did you have a plan for yourself so you knew where you were going to try to get to? I, for one, hope that you'll be able to say yes to all those questions. Because if you do, as a guy who's been to a couple of reunions, you'll be among the happiest people in your class. And that's the important word. Happy, fulfilled, satisfied, loving going to work. Trying to optimize your career around what will be the most successful company, where you'll make the most money, where you'll get the most stock options, that probably won't work. Because if you can surround yourself instead with good people, all of the rest will figure itself out. So that's just kind of my five must-haves for an entrepreneurial career. I hope it's uh, helpful for all of you, and I'm really looking forward to taking questions. Thanks. Do I direct traffic? Okay, sure. Questions? Anyone? In the back.
1: A competitive marketplace as an advantage that rising tide raises all ships, or do you view this as something that's uh,
0: problematic? The question is: how do we view our competition? Um, and what what does it mean for our space? I think. Match.com, JDate, Yahoo has a big site. Um, I am very much of the belief of sort of uh, rising tide. We, you know, in, in the United States there are 80 or 90 million singles. And of those, in a given year, depending on whose research you look at, 15 to 30 million people will visit an online dating site. That just means they'll go to the homepage. It doesn't mean they'll buy anything, doesn't mean they'll subscribe. And then over the course of a year, we know that three or four million people will subscribe to us or one of our competitors. There's, that, there's an enormous gap in how many people look to how many people buy. So I'm very happy when people come into the category. Of course, I'd rather them come to eHarmony than to go somewhere else. But I'm totally fine with you know the category doing better because I think it's just good for everyone. Yes, right
1: here. Yeah. I just mentioned about working with the Greek people. I mean, what's dimension the dimension you found that people I can work with and happy with this person? Do you have some dimension that you said e- eHarmony does? Why must have to work with this? Person? So the the question question is,
0: is, what do I really mean by great people? And, you know, can I list out five dimensions? Um, I think there's two answers to the question. You know, part of what I'm saying for people who are still in school is work for someone great. And I think a great way to um, spot a great person, here's a trick for you to work for. At the end of a lot of interviews, somebody will say, do you have any questions for me? Is there anything I, you know, you want to ask me about myself, my company? I think one of the best questions you can ask is, what has happened to the people who have had this job before me? And if the person kind of stares at you blankly and has no idea what has happened to the people who went before you, that's usually a pretty good sign that they're not going to have any idea what happens to you and they're not going to care. If, on the other hand, the person says, oh, I'm in touch with all of them, this person went to this company, this person still works for us in this role, that's usually a great sign that they'll be a good person to work for. So I think that's a good question to ask. And I think it's a very legitimate question to ask that people won't answer. In terms of pe- great people to work with, the obvious number one thing is just integrity. You know, Life is too short for anybody who you know, won't be honest in their business dealings. There's so much trust involved in entrepreneurial settings. because. You can't check everything out. You have to know that the person you're working with is intelligent um, and honest. Um, I think beyond that, there is just a sense of collaboration and teamwork. And I think for all of you, even though some of you are probably pretty early in a professional career or maybe haven't even started one, you will know good people. It is the same kind of things you look for, like I said, in a great teacher, a great coach, a great professor, somebody that you worked with together on an academic project. These attributes sh- will be very obvious to you, and my sense is you will be very effective at picking them out. Yeah, right there. So I think that uh, on eHarmony, I think a lot of people will be very honest
1: about themselves, but there will probably be some that uh, sort of misrepresent their height, weight, or personality, or even <laughs> other things. So,
0: how you know what kind of mechanism does your service have in place to battle sort of the false representation? As I said in that, the Wall Street Journal piece that came out over the weekend, I said, you know, I, I can't take every potential user to lunch to find out if they're outgoing. Um, but I can use our system, which is 436 questions and a very long questionnaire. Um, there's an amazingly deep body of academic research about how to assess people through questionnaires. And I think we are very effective in capturing someone's personality as long as they don't have an explicit intent to deceive. Look, we've had almost 15 million people register in seven years. We have to do everything in a scalable way. I think one of the reasons that eHarmony is very effective is we do have this questionnaire and it's frankly just not worth the time if your intent is to deceive. There are other sites you can go to and it's a heck of a lot easier. Um, We also have some built-in um, sort of analysis within our system that tries to pick up if someone's intentionally trying to see, for example, by just answering every question on a one to seven scale, four, 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 four. If you do that too much, we'll bounce it. So we've bounced actually about a million and a half people since the company's inception for a whole variety of reasons, including you cannot have been married more than three times, you can't actually be married when you sign up, there are a whole bunch of. <laughs> just to give you a sense of what it's like uh, in an entrepreneurial life, there's a guy suing us presently right now in the state of California because we declined service to him for being married. Um, And it is ongoing, and I'm not even entirely sure if we will win, so. (laughs) We should. You right there, yeah.
1: Um, I'm wondering how you would advise like an undergrad like myself or anyone in this room to choose between getting more education um, in an academic area other than business school versus taking a job with like an industry, mid-sized
0: industry job? Um, look, it's different for every person. You know, the Stanford co-term seems like a sweet deal to me as far as I can tell where you get that master's for staying around an extra year. So that's certainly not a bad choice. Um, I think the cl- sooner in your career you can get a customer-facing role, Again, you know, sometimes for some reason, people in technical jobs think that they are not qualified or shouldn't orient themselves toward being customer-facing. I think the sooner you can find yourself, and by the way, you can do this through an internship as well. You can do this while you're on campus. People oftentimes, or some people, gravitate away from anything that seems sales-oriented. And this is one of the biggest mistakes people make. Because those are the people who make an enormous difference. Those are the people who found companies. Those are the people who when you're backing a company you just say I've got to be in business with this man or woman because they know how to sell and so anything you can do that's customer facing earlier I think in general is better because once you get to be known as an effective person in that sort of talent of delighting the end user you you rest of your career will work out great no matter what you do so in general I'd like to see you get customer facing sooner because it will give you more context to your education but you've got to figure out, you know, I don't know if you're thinking about a PhD program or what you would be thinking of. Yeah. Uh, yeah.
1: Who's using e-heart?
0: Um It's a good question. Um, because we're so big, it's just about everyone, frankly, um, in terms of there's no specific representation of a certain part of the country. There's no, um, you know, our fastest grouping growing group of users now are people over 50. It used to be much younger users. But as sort of the site has grown, it's amazing. We have people of every religion, every race, 200 com- countries in the world are represented. Um, one of my favorite stories about eHarmony is a gentleman in India, a woman in Virginia who met through eHarmony, and neither of them had I- ever been on an airplane until they met for the first time. Although some people think they met to get married. They just met to meet, and then they later got married. So, I mean, I think the site is just incredibly representative of the United States, you know, rural, urban, it doesn't generally matter. Uh, yeah, you're right there. Hi. Uh, Can you tell us how you kind of went from the cold winter in Houston to becoming the CEO? What some of the key things you've learned along the way to think you
1: successful
0: now? What happened in the intervening uh, 11 or 12 years? Um, you. Know, Oh, I'm sorry. The, the question was, um, how did I in my career go from what was a clear entrepreneurial failure, which was that smoothie business, to ultimately becoming the CEO of eHarmony? Um, it would take up a whole other hour to take you through that decade. But I think the point to remember is, back to that point I made, I think it was the second one, be willing to take risks. You effectively have this unbelievable safety net under you when you are a Stanford graduate. It's just part of what you've achieved by getting here. I I don't, and I think it's, you deserve it when you got here because you've shown yourself to be incredibly talented, hardworking to get admitted, and basically the professional world looks at you in sort of a special way. And that's worth taking advantage of when you think about entrepreneurship. So in my case, The business had failed. I'd actually helped another business school classmate of mine to start an internet business in the earliest kind of internet days. And so I was somewhat immersed in this very small pocket of internet companies between 94 and 96. And so when I got back to the Bay Area, and frankly, and it gets into a little more detail than we need to get into, I'd been going back and forth between Houston when I was doing the smoothie business and San Francisco. And for me that led to another startup and frankly right around the same time I founded my venture fund and that then set me off on kind of an entrepreneurial career and so I, I had been very closely watching and was someone involved with the internet businesses and so when I got back I was able to kind of insert myself very easily um, but I think the, the takeaway point is if you ever say to yourself I'm not going to do this because I'm afraid of falling behind my peers. I talked about that. Or I can't imagine what will happen to me if this doesn't work out. I would say on both counts, go ahead and do it. You'll be absolutely fine. Uh, yeah, I'm trying to think of a corner I haven't hit. Yeah, right here. Uh,
1: what were the first uh, <coughs> five positions at eMarketing Were you the founder of, of the firm? I was the founding okay.
0: investor. So I didn't, I haven't worked there the whole time, but...
1: My question, I guess, is just having come from business school and not necessarily having sort of a technical engineering background, mm-hmm. um, what were sort of the first five positions that, that the firm needed to fill in order to approach uh, dating through this sort of algorithmic process uh, in addition to also starting a firm? So,
0: you know, two people who deserve an enormous amount of credit um, a guy named Galen Buckwalter and a guy named Steve Carter, both who work there today were both um, uh, psychologists. Well, at that time, Steve had not quite finished um, his PhD program, but we had a founder, Neil Warren, who had this clinical experience. And by the way, just to repeat the question, I'm remembering Tom's point is, who are the kind of first five people hired? And the, the relevant point for eHarmony is, we knew that we had this clinical psychologist who had started the company, who had 35 years of clinical experience working with thousands of patients, and he had a hypothesis about what makes people compatible and have great marriages. But we needed researchers to actually go out and find out if it was right. And that was one of the biggest risk factors in the business. I'm not sure what would have happened had they come back and been like, oh, it turns out it's completely wrong. Having a lot in common is the worst thing you could do. It turned out we went out and did the research on these 800 couples originally. So two of the very early hires were academic, basically building the algorithm. Uh, Yeah.
1: Among the the people who start to answer this 400 question questionnaire, what percent of them have not been able to finish?
0: What so the question is what percentage of people start who start our questionnaire finish? I think, Um, staggeringly, and this is amazing to me because it takes over an hour way more than half of people who start, finish. And I think that tells you something about working in a meaningful business. This is incredibly important in people's lives. So they're willing to take that hour, hour and a half to do the questionnaire because they feel like they're going to get something valuable on the other end. Yep. Yeah, right there.
1: Um, do you think that the personality questionnaire gives people a new outlook on like, what makes relationships
0: successful? I think it does, you know. Um, I was talking with somebody before the talk here we have also a a service on our site for married couples who can um, use it to make their marriage even better once they're already married and something I've learned through eHarmony is that this assessment piece it's the free personality excuse me uh, profile that we give away to every user um, is incredibly valuable to people people come up to me all the time and they say I took the personality profile and I just can't believe how accurate it was describing me and people very often we noticed send it to friends just for sort of more validation and it gets to this whole we've used the slogan before who knew that science and love could be so compatible and people do not want to believe that you can actually analytically measure someone's personality or who they might be most successful with and so we get very positive feedback from it and yet I'm always amazed at how surprised people are because this is something you can do and you can accomplish. I think we're really good at it, but people almost think it's an impossible task to get done. Uh, yeah. In the back there?
1: What's the next step for eHarmony? Harmony? where do you see the company going in four or five years?
0: The uh, question was uh, what are the next steps for Harmony? Where is the company going in the next four or five years? I think there's a few answers. In our single service, which is what you probably know us for or you've seen our television ads, is to just keep growing that at the very kind of rapid clip we've been doing it. Um, There are large pockets of people who still will not use an online relationship service. I don't criticize them. I think it's our own failure for not getting the marketing right to get them into the category. We have the benefit that as more and more people marry this way, and perhaps it's 1% of marriages in the United States this year just from eHarmony, it has this incredible word-of-mouth effect um, once you kind of go to a wedding. And so one is just grow that core singles business. Second, we will take that singles business globally and actually market it aggressively in other countries. This week we just launched eHarmony Canada, and I think you'll see us launch other countries in the years going forward. Second, we have new services. So last year we launched the service for married couples. In years, 55% of Americans know what eHarmony does in seven years. And I'm just proud of that, but it also there's a lot of elasticity in the brand. People think of us all things relationships from what we can tell. So I think we'll take it in all those directions. Um, you know, we're still a private company. Obviously an IPO is probably not that far off in our future, although there's a lot of challenges these days to also being a public company, so we think about that. Do you have any, uh, any
1: thoughts on uh, going into like the hiring and uh, employment assessment field? Uh, uh, the
0: question is, do we think about sometimes going to a hiring or an employment assessment? We've talked about it a lot, and people have come to us um, trying to see if we, they could partner with us because our brand, to my last point, has, I think, a lot of connections into all relationships, including employment. But we don't have anything to announce right now. Oh, yeah, right there on the front.
1: Two questions. Um, One, when you think about taking risks in your career, I I would say that business school doesn't necessarily come up
0: um, as sort of like a general risk-taking path, so maybe could you explain how that plays out in your
1: life? And the second one is, you know, CEO of a dating site, maybe how some of us might get a date by 7 tonight.
0: (laughs) 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 It is Stanford, after all. Um, You know, business school... uh, Business school is really an interesting thing because there are many good entrepreneurs come out of business school, and yet I think like almost any other graduate program, people often perceive it as being a risk-mitigating move in their career because you can't be a doctor without going to med school. You can't be a lawyer without going to law school. You can't be most types of you know engineers without the right education. Um, you know, Look, I think business school is an amazing education, and when I think about entrepreneurial education as a student at Stanford in the business school today, compared to when I went there 13, 14 years ago, it's just staggering the change. I mean, I I literally feel like I went there in the stone age of entrepreneurial education. It is so sophisticated now. What they're doing over at the CSI, um, you know, what they're doing for all different kinds of students really gives people an opportunity to get this entrepreneurial foundation. And I think there's a very um, unfortunate conclusion that people make, which is you, there's a binary status to entrepreneurship. You either are an entrepreneur and you went and founded a company or you're not. The truth is these skills make people unbelievably valuable, talented employees for other kinds of companies. And so for me, I would not have for anything in my life traded my education I got at the GSB. I have an amazing amount of gratitude for what I got from that place Um, and hopefully what I've given back in a lot of you know guest lectures and a lot of other things Um, but I so I think business school is a great path for people who you know know that they want to be in business and have an incredibly great couple years Uh, yeah back corner yeah uh,
1: what about the idea that there may be some people who maybe aren't emotionally healthy enough to be in a relationship? Do you, do you have the philosophy that maybe jerks can do every W or not or <laughs> 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 Emotional or mental problems, drug addiction, that sort of thing, how does
0: people do that? That would sort of be the J harmony, jerks harmony.
1: Uh,
0: the uh, the question was, how do we deal with people who are, I think the specific question was jerks, but I think the broader question are is, maybe people who aren't that suitable at that point in their life to be in a relationship. Is that fair? Everything from people who are just jerks or people <laughs> who, are, you know, who are drug
1: addicts or Yeah, jerks, <laughs> drug addicts
0: is sort of the question. Um, <laughs> you send in a hair sample and... Uh, no, look, like I said, we've rejected over one million people who have tried to register for eHarmony. Um, there are a lot of reasons you can get rejected um, and some of them involve sort of very severe sort of emotional issues that people might have that could be associated with the things that you're talking about um, it's a sensitive topic because I don't like it to come across as if it's easy to kind of stumble out of E. Harmony. I mean the, there's a very well-known body of kind of academic work that's been done on how to screen for various conditions and I think that our investment in the health of the eHarmony marriage pool, if you will, or serious relationship pool, has really paid off with our customers. There is a sense that people who go through that process and are willing to invest the time are better to be in the system. And so we've, I think, made the right decision, but at considerable immediate financial cost. Because if you say you know, eHarmony costs between $60 for one month and $250 for a year, and you take our average conversion rates to paid, we've given up probably close to $100 million in revenue over the lifetime of the company with all these people that, that we've turned away. Yeah. One more question. One more? Two more. Two more, maybe? Anybody back, anybody? Uh, yeah, sure, go ahead.
1: For the matching service, I mean, at first you need to have the base customer to be matched? And how do you get the for us, like 100 or 200 customers, The family members? Yeah.
0: It's a great question. The question is basically how do you get this massive wheel spinning? You know, how it's a network business. And I think our first member, I was not CEO back then, but was a lady in San Diego. And uh I often think, you know, it was you know, how do you make that first customer happy? It's a network business. Um the the truth is the credit goes Absolutely, without a single doubt, to Dr. Neil Clark Warren, who is the founder of this company. Um, he is an amazing person, a 65 year old entrepreneur when he started the company. And he spent in the year 2000, we launched on August 22nd, 2000. He spent three or four months down in Dallas, Texas, doing just about any type of PR he could get. I mean, it was like if he could go and speak to a group of three people in an auditorium, he would go, he would do any radio show, he would do any kind of PR he could get. And that incredible amount of hustle, that incredible just sort of passion he had for the business, that he and Greg Forgatch, who is the founding CEO, what they were able to pull off was just entrepreneurial hustle as much as anything else. And so, um, it's an amazing thing to build the network. And when I think today, you know, wow, nearly 15 million people have done it, it did start with that very first few. And so I think it was a lot of word of mouth and a lot of PR. Last question. Yes, you on the left. I'm
1: curious if you elaborate a little bit that CBC only, and um, okay. also um, if you kind of had a passion for matchmaking before you got into this or how this
0: Um, Two questions. One is what do I see as the competitive threats and then more personally did I always have a passion for matchmaking? Uh, The first part, competitive threats. The competitive threat that people always ask me about are social networks. So MySpace, Facebook, things like that. Every indication that I have is that the end user has complete clarity about the difference between Facebook and eHarmony. Now that's not really our demographic Facebook users but even MySpace users and anybody who's ever been on our site who's looked at it, if you're on MySpace there's absolutely no confusion in your mind about what the two sites are about. What I worry a lot more about is just raw innovation coming from some corner that I don't expect. We have an amazing amount of market power because of this huge network of users that we have But if someone comes up with sort of the better mousetrap, you know, a more clever way to interact with users. Sure, we have a patent on our compatibility uh, matching system. We invest an enormous amount in it. We have five PhDs who work at the company doing basically nothing but making that compatibility matching even better. But I worry about something just coming out of left field. To your second question, I'm as shocked as anyone that I'm the CEO of eHarmony. You know, look, I'm passionate about technology and entrepreneurship and all kinds of web-enabled businesses. And like I said, there's an enormous amount of good fortune you have to have in your entrepreneurial career. And one of the best things that ever happened to me was meeting those two entrepreneurs on Super Bowl Sunday of 2000 because the amount of meaning that I've derived from what we do every day of the year. I mean, people, there's an old cliché, which is something like, at the end of your career, nobody's ever sorry that they didn't spend more time at the office. And while, believe me, I love getting out of the office, there's this very tangible sense with us that what you're doing every day is helping people to accomplish something that they're extremely excited about doing. So anyway, I just want to thank everybody for all the good questions and everything. I've got a couple business cards somewhere around here for anybody interested in jobs after school. And uh, I'll be around to take any questions you have. Thank you.
1: Of bases and STVP, I'd like to thank Greg for coming and speaking today.
0: Perfect, thank you. That's I've never received a rose. <laughs> thank you. Yeah sorry. We have just sure. one quick announcement. We'd like to continue our tradition of rewarding the best forum poster each week. So there were three excellent posts on Reed Hoffman from last week: Joan Chen, Adrian Fonseca, and Kevin Swan. And we'd like to present Kevin with a copy of Jeff Moore's Crossing the Chasm. So if he can come down afterwards. That'd be great.